950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. Welcome to the 4 o'clock show with Brett on your Friday afternoon. Since we have a snowstorm that is impending, I have pre-recorded our program today. Although, at this point when I am actually recording this content, it's about 12.45 right now, and I actually have not seen a flake of snow, but... Apparently, the weather people say we're supposed to be getting 6 to 10 inches of snow tonight and early tomorrow morning. So I'm heeding their warnings, even though they're often, well, not correct when they make their weather predictions. In fact, I kind of like producer Eric's idea about how the weather people actually predict the weather and how you should interpret it. I believe his format was, with whatever they're predicting, you divide that by two and then take the square root, and that's actually... (laughs) the amount of snow you can actually expect. So even though they're saying, what is it, like 6 to 10 or 6 to 11 inches of snow, wouldn't be surprised if we only end up with like 2 or 3 or even 4 inches here in the Twin Cities just because they always seem to overhype these storms. And I think a big reason why is that it all goes back to a snowstorm we had back in January of 2018. Do you remember this one? Well, for me, it was easy to remember because it was the day after the Vikings lost to the Eagles in the NFC Championship. And this was one of the few storms where the weather people actually underpredicted the amount of snow they were expecting us to get here in the Twin Cities, where it caused a lot of havoc with schools, where I think a number of school districts had the actually had their buses running several hours behind. In fact, I think in St. Paul, they actually had students who didn't get home until like 9 or 10 p.m. So I think because of that one storm where they underpredicted the amount of snow we were supposed to get back in January in 2018, I feel like that's probably why we often see the weather people now overhype these storms, just to make sure everyone kind of heeds those warnings and doesn't do anything dumb during these snowstorms. So... If they actually do happen to be right, do take those proper precautions and do not travel because with the wind we're expected to get with these storms, yeah, it is definitely going to make travel conditions treacherous. But like I said, I am pre-recorded today, so I am at home as we speak and who knows how much snow we have gotten at this point when you're listening to the program here at about 4.08 or 4.09 p.m. All right, coming up on the show today, we do have a couple of interviews lined up, including my Friday visit with Professor David Schultz, as we are going to talk about impeachment strategy in the Senate on both the Republican side and the Democratic side as well. A really good discussion that we'll be having with David in two parts that will be taking place coming up in just a few minutes. We'll also be speaking with Tabitha Montgomery of the PPNA, Powderhorn Park Neighborhood Association, as they have a great event taking place in honor of Martin Luther King Day on Monday. So we'll be chatting more about that coming up in the final segment of the show. But before we get to all of that, let's get to a few news items for today. Did you know you can vote? Although I might not encourage you to do it today in case we are actually going to get that supposed snowstorm. But if you really have the desire, you can go vote in your presidential primary. You just show up, pick your party, you get that ballot, then you go ahead and vote. At least for me, I won't be voting quite yet. And that's because I am still undecided on who I am going to vote for in terms of my presidential preference. I'll probably talk more about this next week, but I actually like five or six of the front runners we have out there right now. They have some strengths. They also have some weaknesses. So I'm still kind of sifting through and trying to decide who I plan on voting for in the upcoming Democratic primary. Also in the news today, and should we be surprised about this at all, we have yet another case of the Trump administration lying. Do you remember when Iran launched that counterattack against a U.S. military base in Iraq? 
Well, remember when Trump tweeted that everything is perfectly fine? Well, it turns out several days later, things weren't perfectly fine, as the Pentagon is reporting that actually 11 U.S. troops were injured during that attack as they were flown for evaluation of concussion-like symptoms. So the problem I have here is not necessarily the fact that the Trump administration lied, because we often see that. The problem is that this is probably not likely to be reported in a lot of the corporate media, so that narrative will still exist where everything was fine after that initial Iranian counterattack, even though that was far from the case since we did have 11 U.S. troops actually get injured. And that goes to the same thing with the supposed trade deal with China, or at least this Phase 1 trade deal. Because if you actually go in and read the details of this trade deal, it's not really a deal at all. It's basically just a ceasefire, for lack of a better way of putting it. It's just putting a pause on any future tariffs that were going to be enacted by either the U.S. or China. The existing tariffs, well, guess what? They are pretty much still in place, and that could still have a major impact on the economy. But again, probably not going to see that reported very often in the corporate news. They'll probably still keep pushing this narrative that we have a trade deal with China, even though we really don't. It's more of a ceasefire than an actual trade deal. All right, now before we get to our first interview of the day with Professor David Schultz, do you want to remind you that again, on Wednesday, January 29th, I am hosting an event with Professor Schultz over at Hamblin University, as we are going to be having an impeachment forum where the doors will open at 6 o'clock, with the talk beginning at 7, and then we'll also have a Q&A available as well. Should be very well-timed since we'll be in the midst of that Senate trial. Again, that takes place Wednesday, January 29th, Hamlin University. Find more details over at am950radio.com. And also, the Blue State Ball is going to be Sunday, February 23rd at Bauhaus Brew Labs in Minneapolis. A little bit different this year with the Blue State Ball being on a Sunday afternoon. It'll be a little less formal, but a whole lot of fun. So, looking forward to that at Bauhaus Brew Labs. VIP will be at noon, where you can have a meet-and-greet with Tom Hartman, Mac McNeil, and hopefully some other special guests, with general admission at 1 o'clock. It'll be a lot of fun that Sunday afternoon again on February 23rd, and tickets are now available, so go ahead and order those at am950radio.com, and do that sooner rather than later, because it is a guarantee that this event will sell out, so make sure you order your tickets at am950radio.com going to take a break and come on back and chat with David Schultz as we're going to be talking about the impeachment trial in the Senate and strategy for both Democrats and Republicans. That's coming up next here on the program. AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. Welcome back to the 4 o'clock show with Brett. So normally we do live visits with Professor David Schultz occasionally on Fridays, but today with that big snowstorm on the way, we are recording this ahead of time. And with how quickly things move in the political world, just as a heads up, some of what we might be talking about could be out of date, but you never know, so we shall see. Anyways, very happy to welcome Professor David Schultz back to the program as we're going to be talking about the upcoming impeachment trial and other topics. Hi, Professor Schultz. How are you doing today? I'm doing very well, and I don't think anything that we talk about will be out of date. Hopefully, but you never know what 
The age of Trump stuff can get out of date awfully quickly, but we shall see. <laughs> it's definitely a different world we live in now. All right, so the first question I have for you here, Professor Schultz, is the fact that Nancy Pelosi just sent those articles of impeachment over to the Senate, which I don't know what you kind of think about that, but I'm not necessarily a big fan of that strategy because I think she should have held on to those articles, at least through the State of the Union address, to at least distract Trump during that address. I'm just thinking about that from a political strategy standpoint. So why do you think she ended up in deciding to send those over now? Well, I agree with you. I think there's, there was all types of political reasons why she should have held on to it. In fact, going back further, if, if I were sort of waving my magic wand, I probably would not have even done the impeachment vote until about March or April this year, so that it would then, maybe even later, to force then a possible Senate trial getting closer to the convention, closer to the general election, because we all know at the end of the day that, that the, the Senate is not going to hold a fair trial. Um, it's going to be nearly a straight party line vote. He's going to be acquitted. Um, and so to me, the question is, how do you maximize the political capital that you get out of the impeachment vote in the, in the House, recognizing that the president is going to use a, an acquittal vote in the Senate for a vindication? So one would have been push it further. Two would be to say, okay, so let's do scenario that you have. Let's force Donald Trump to do a, a State of the Union speech while he's still waiting for a trial. Now, it is possible, by the way, that he may be facing his trial um, and then maybe going on when he gives a State of the Union speech. Um, so that's enough, you know, so we don't know how the exact time is going to play out. But no, I would have held on. I think why she decided to do what she did is maybe she thinks that she's already extracted enough political um, um, damage from the Senate at this point. The fact that the Senate is saying, well, we're probably not going to call witnesses or we're not sure what we're going to do what we're going to do, or the fact that it's become very clear to many voters that the Senate trial is not going to be fair. Maybe she believes she's already accomplished her goals. I'm not completely convinced of that. I think maybe among hardcore Democrats, she's, um, she's made her point. But this is a battle for, for what? For those swing voters in swing states, and they may not have picked this up yet. Yeah, because I was thinking maybe she's getting some pressure from some in her caucus. Or I also had this thought as well, that maybe she actually does hope that the Senate trial is wrapped up by the State of the Union address. So, well, to use a football analogy, Trump, during the State of the Union address, basically spikes the football and gets flagged for excessive celebration, which wouldn't make him look good in front of the country if he's sitting there and bragging about how he got acquitted in the Senate. What are your thoughts on that, or maybe the idea that she just overall did have some concerns from constituents in her caucus? I think that's, those are both possibilities. I'll throw a third one in, that she was getting pressure from people such as Bernie Sanders, Amy Klobuchar, um, and Elizabeth Warren, who were in the Senate, to say that, listen, you know, if this drags out much further, the impact that this is going to have upon our presidential prospects and our campaigning is going to be pretty significant. And that's another possibility to think about, too, because this is going to pretty much lock down those three senators, you know, who are, let's say, three of the top five 
um, candidates for the um, you know for the presidential nomination right now for the Democrats, and so that may be where some of the other pressure is coming from, also as well as maybe Senate Democrats who are saying that listen, we need to be thinking about. Um, those Senate seats that are up for re-election, we've got some concerns that we have on our end. So I also wouldn't dismiss that as a possibility in terms of the pressures that are coming and bearing upon her about her decision. So obviously the Senate trial is going to be taking place uh, just on the eve of the Iowa caucuses. So do Joe Biden and Pete Buttigieg and Mike Bloomberg and others actually gain an advantage during the Senate trial? They, they potentially get some, but on the other hand, it all deter- it's all based upon how much opportunity can Sanders, Warren, and Klobuchar get during that Senate trial. Because we know for a large chunk of it, they're just going to have to watch, just sit and listen. They're not going to have a lot of opportunity to be able to do a lot of um, campaigning and a lot of speaking in the Senate. So that, that, I think, becomes a, a concern for them. Um, does it give Biden uh, and Buttigieg more opportunity? Yes. But I have to think in terms of what's going to happen during the Senate impeachment trial is that just understanding how the news media operates, that the focus is going to be far more upon um, what's happening in the Senate. And I'm just not sure how much coverage Biden and Buttigieg are going to get. So it can cut either way in terms of exactly how it's going to be played. And I think that's what's going to be interesting to see how during the trial, how does Trump spin all of this and how do the different Democrats, some who are senators or not senators, how do they position themselves in terms of what's going to happen? And then we should also not forget the fact that we have 35 senators up for election this coming year, of which 23 are Republicans, let's say, including people such as Susan Collins in Maine. How do they position themselves in terms of what they're going to do? Because how they vote, what they say, what they do may have a bearing upon the re-election prospects. Yeah, let's talk about those groups of senators and start with the Democrats first. If you are Amy Klobuchar or Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren, what are you hoping to accomplish during these hearings? Because obviously, as you're talking about, you can't be on your phone or you can't exactly be campaigning. But obviously, as these hearings are going to be televised, the camera is definitely going to be panning to those three people frequently. So what do they hope to accomplish during those hearings? Well, let's start. I'm going to put Warren and Sanders in the same camp, and I think both of them are, are hoping to sort of strengthen their anti-Trump credentials, which is what they they already have at this point. And I think they want to hope to be able to at least get some opportunity to be able to make some type of criticism and explain why why they think Trump should be removed from office. And so I think they converge, but they also, as we saw in the most recent debate, the two of them are competing for the same liberal end of the base. Both of them are going to have to be figuring out ways where they can perhaps move some of the more progressive votes from one from, from let's say Sanders to Warren or Warren to Sanders. So they're in, they're in the most competition with one another. If I'm Amy Klobuchar, this is a really dangerous position to be in right now because part of what her mantra has been for so long is to say that I can appeal to Republican voters. Um, I, I've won in places where Democrats don't normally win. So now she's in the position of where if she comes too hard in terms of criticism of Trump and then eventually if she votes to, to, uh, to convict Trump, I think 
she loses a lot of her ability um, to be able to make that argument in terms of, of, of appealing to Trump voters because she casts, she casts the vote against Trump. She's forever going to lose those votes um, of Trump people. And so if she doesn't get the presidential nomination or, um, um, and runs for the Senate again, um, she's damaged herself. If she does get the presidential nomination, um, she's alienated herself against the Trump people. So I think this is a, a much more difficult vote for her in terms of how she's been positioning herself um, during this presidential race and for the last several years. So overall, you think she's probably going to sit there and be as quiet as possible where she's not going to be making any statements after the proceedings for the day have wrapped up. You think she's probably just going to try to sit back and maybe try to blend in and not draw much attention to herself? I don't know. I mean, because that's the other risk is if she says nothing, then does she disappear from the from the debate in, in the critical next two weeks where um, we're getting very close to the Iowa caucuses? She's made Iowa the linchpin of her campaign at this point. She has to do well there. We know the most recent polls have her coming in at a distant fifth, still in single digits. Um, I think she has to get at least in the top three, um, if not do better in Iowa. So this, this becomes very difficult for her, and I don't know what her, stra- her best strategy is. Be quiet, um, um, take a, a vociferous, very public role in terms of, of the impeachment process. Um, this, I think this is much harder for her because she needs more name recognition, more face time. But the, the way she would get it here would be how? By, by coming out against Trump, which again then undermines part of her rationale for running for office, which is I can appeal to those moderate Republicans. Yeah, and obviously this timing couldn't be any worse for her because I think you would agree if she doesn't do well in Iowa, that's pretty much her campaign. It's over from there, isn't it? Yeah, I think so, because she's, she's staked everything there. Um, if you look at the polling, for example, going forward, um, when you go to New Hampshire, which is next, she's also at a distant fifth or sixth. Then you go to Nevada, and then you go to South Carolina. By the time you get to South Carolina, she's an asterisk. What I mean by that, she's barely polling at 1%. Um, if she doesn't hit... Um, at least, if I can use the sports analogy, she doesn't hit at least a triple, um, if not a home run in Iowa. Um, I find it very difficult for her to move forward at this point. And so she, she really has to do a lot. And for now, the, the impeachment trial to be coming, again, in these last couple of weeks before the Iowa caucuses, complicates her ability to campaign and to do messaging. So let's talk about the Republican group of senators that you mentioned, and chief among them facing very tough re-election campaigns are Colorado's Cory Gardner and Maine's Susan Collins. So what do those two hope to accomplish from these impeachment hearings? Do they actually have an opportunity to maybe make some gains by appearing that they're tough on Trump? What are your thoughts on that? Well, I think, I think you're absolutely right. Those are the two most likely and vulnerable of the Republicans. Some claiming or perhaps Joni Ernst also in, in Iowa, which is a possibility also. But yes, they face a situation where if they, if they look like they're just straight party line Trump, especially somebody like Susan Collins, who's already vulnerable and there's a lot of money being um, spent, going to be potentially spent against her, this is going to make it harder to sort of maintain that kind of independent, moderate Republican persona that she's been trying to nurture for so many years, which, by the way, really isn't accurate because 
whenever a push comes to shove, she votes the state straight Republican Party line. So, mm-hmm. so this, this becomes a tough one for her. Now, does she try to do something such as say that witnesses should be called? Um, does, she, does she demand that the witnesses be there? Um, I think she's going to have to maneuver on, on that direction there. Um, now, would she at the end of the day, and I think this is a possibility, would she um, vote to, to basically convict Donald Trump as a way of trying to convince Democrats that, in fact, she is a, is a moderate? Given the fact that there are so many votes in favor, or rather, I should rephrase it, given the fact that it takes a two-thirds vote to convict the president, the Republicans could afford to lose a couple. And so could she maybe bolt? Yes, but on the other hand, if she were to vote um, to convict Donald Trump, most certainly she would face a a challenge from the right within the Republican Party in the state of Maine. So, th- so again, in many ways, Susan Collins is facing a a similar problem to Amy Klobuchar. In different ways, they've tried to nurture the same po- political persona or the same ground. And for them, the impeachment trial risks the facades that they both have crafted for years. So if I'm thinking as a strategist for Cory Gardner or Susan Collins, to me the dream strategy would be is that in terms of calling witnesses, Susan Collins or Susan Collins and Cory Gardner join with the 47 other Democrats and vote in favor of having witnesses. Meanwhile, the 51 other Republicans vote not in favor of having witnesses. We have a quick trial and then it wraps up. Because to me, if you do end up calling witnesses, you potentially could put them in a tricky situation when they have to decide, do we want to subpoena Michael Bolton or do we really let this get off the rails and subpoena Joe Biden and Hunter Biden? That seems to me that could really put them in a tough position if they actually do end up having witnesses getting called at this trial. No, I think you're right. I think if 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 they can vote to say, yes, we wanted to bring in John Bolton, we wanted to bring in um, other witnesses, but guess what? Those rest of those Republicans wouldn't let us do that or something like that. Um, that may be one way that they can sort of have their cake and eat it, too. But you're right. If they actually do call the witnesses in, and this is, I think, the worry that the, some of the Republicans have, uh, if they start to bring in Bolton, who, who starts to talk a lot more about what he knows, or other people, this is... A, a, even if they don't get the conviction, the Democrats don't get the conviction, you've dragged out more incriminating and potentially potentially incriminating, I should say, um, potentially damaging evidence um, regarding the President of the United States. Um, and this just becomes part of what? Becomes part of the story that is um, the narrative going into the 2020 elections. And by the way, my comment here, I'm presupposing that Bolton um, um, has damaging information because the way he's been talking for the last few weeks, it's suggesting um, that his testimony um, would not be supportive of Donald Trump. Yeah, that's what I, I'm kind of picking up as as well when it comes to him. Uh, if we do end up getting witnesses called at this trial, if I'm sitting there as Chuck Schumer or other people among the Democratic leadership, I would think you would try to use this as a way to goad the GOP into really making this thing go off the rails where they would try to call Joe Biden and Hunter Biden and Adam Schiff and Nancy Pelosi and others and basically just try to make this as much of a circus as possible and force Susan Collins and Cory Gardner and Lisa Murkowski and Joni Ernst to take some really tough votes. At least for me, I could see that as being beneficial to have 
for Democrats to have this turn into a circus? Or do you think there actually would be risks in having that happen? Well, I, well, obviously, the the bringing in the the Hunter and Joe Bidens will appeal to the Republican hardcore base. They would love that. Um, Donald Trump wants that. I think Mitch McConnell um, understands the fact that that type of of, uh, of essentially show trial would would be would be not good for the Senate overall, but more importantly, um, it would impact you know th- those let's say, half a dozen or so Republican Senate candidates, you know, who are, who are vulnerable at this point. And so I think this is, this is why I think you, you have Mitch McConnell wanting to say quick, but on the other hand, quick and let's go. But on the other hand, if you do it really quick and you don't actually have testimony whatsoever, um, then you run the risk of saying, well, guess what? This wasn't a real trial. It was just a sham. And so this becomes the challenge, I think, for the Republicans also, is how do they actually make this look like they they seriously took their oath of neutrality and partiality seriously, you know, the oath that they took on, on Thursday, but at the same time make this a trial that supports Donald Trump. That's that's the challenge that I think McConnell and the Republicans face. And that was part one of my conversation with Hamlin University political science professor David Schultz. Coming up next, we'll be talking more about impeachment strategy for both Democrats and Republicans in the Senate. But first, let's get to the news from Public News Service. You're listening to AM950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. It's Brett Johnson during the 4 o'clock show. Again, our program today has been pre-recorded due to that snowstorm that we are supposedly going to be getting. Let's get back to our conversation now with Hamlin University political science professor David Schultz as we're talking about impeachment strategy for the upcoming Senate trial. Now, let's move on to another figure who is going to be, well, very prominent in this Senate trial. That, of course, is the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, John Roberts, who will be presiding over the trial. And basically, he just wants this to completely go away, doesn't he? Oh, yeah. He, the last thing that he wants is this trial, because on the one hand, he's very protective of the integrity of the court. We know he's conservative. There's no question about it. Um, but him and Trump don't get along. You know, he, you know, when Trump was criticizing the federal judiciary a couple years ago because he claimed that there were, what, there were Obama judges, there were um, Bush judges, et cetera, et cetera, the chief justice barked back and said, no, we're doing our job, we're not biased whatsoever. So on the one hand, he wants to maintain this neutrality. On the other hand, there's no question that this is, he's presiding over one of the most conservative courts ever in American history um, that's, um, that may be potentially also um, um, just, um, taking a case that might finally dismantle um, the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare. He's taking the Trump tax returns case um, and assume, let's say for the sake of argument, you've got the impeachment hearing or trial plus those two decisions, and all three of them rule in favor of the President of the United States. This is a significant damage to the federal courts and a huge black eye to to the Chief Justice. Now, I think the last thing he wants is this, and he's being torn between sort of his his partisan leanings um, overall, which are conservative, um, what I suspect is also his dislike of Donald Trump, but at the same time, there's also this institutional defense 
of, of the court system. So he's being pulled in three, perhaps, different directions, and he needs to figure out what to do. I mean, the message that we're getting, which is, I think, really interesting um, here, is that just about everybody um, who's involved in this process, the Chief Justice, the Senators, the House, um, Amy Klobuchar, Susan Collins, there are enormous risks for absolutely everybody um, in this entire trial. And it potentially could implode or explode on almost any of them. So talking more about John Roberts, he could be faced with the prospect of ruling on some very tough procedural questions, and obviously that's kind of a nightmare scenario for him. Could you think of what types of rulings he might have to make or what types of disputes might be brought before him Will he, where he will be forced to actually make a call? Yeah, I think some of them are going to be potentially evidentiary issues. What if, for example, now um, um, Democrats want to say, well, we want particular types of evidence to be brought in. We want certain types of documents. Um, or, um, Or let's say what would normally be considered to be hearsay evidence in a criminal proceeding, but those rules don't apply here. Um, At what point does he um, rule and say, yes, this evidence should be allowed to come in um, and therefore put him on a collision course with the Republicans in the Senate who can overrule him by a majority vote? Or at the same time, is he on a collision course with the President of the United States? So I think it's going to be some of those evidentiary issues. I mean, right now, no one's expecting a Chief Justice to have too prominent of a role, going back to when Rehnquist presided over the Clinton trial, um, he didn't exert too significant of a role either. But that was a very different era, which was far less partisan and conflictual than it is now. And I could see the pressures being on Roberts. In fact, if the Democrats are smart, I think they squeeze the Chief Justice. I think they force a series of decisions that the Chief Justice has to make about, about evidence, um, about witnesses, about document production, um, and, and force him to make rulings um, that put him under a bind, and at the same time, force then if, um, the Senate Republicans to have to either vote to overrule or to affirm the Chief Justice. So one of the interesting pieces of news I saw come through the wire today is that apparently Ken Starr is going to be on Donald Trump's legal team. Is this really relevant politically in terms of maybe shifting public opinion, or is this Donald Trump trolling, or is this basically just kind of amusing that Ken Starr actually got put on Donald Trump's legal team? I think I think it's I think it's an amusing um, distraction, you know, in the sense that. Donald Trump really wants to make this what? He would love it nothing to be more than um, a a media event, throwing people like Dershowitz, throwing people like Kenneth Starr in. Um, I mean, this is, I mean, all of this is really what? Both appealing to the base and it's headline grabbing. And that's what Trump really, that's what Trump really thrives on more than anything else. You know, whether Paul Starr is going to be able, Kenneth Starr, I should say, Kenneth Starr is going to be able to add add to anything in terms of defense or Alan Dershowitz. I'm not clear in terms of that. Again, it's a foregone, you know, barring something very, very strange, it's a foregone conclusion. He's going to be acquitted by the Republican Senate. This is more in terms of how he positions this and makes this look in terms of perhaps appealing to his base. And the more, again, the more he makes it a circus like this, um, again, the more he risks 
undermining the credibility of the Senate in terms of what it's done. Well, it's certainly going to be an interesting trial to watch over the coming days and weeks. And by the way, Professor Schultz, we should mention, we'll of course be hosting a forum talking about the impeachment trial that'll be taking place on Wednesday, January 29th over at Hamlin University. I believe we're going to open the doors at 6 o'clock, get the talk underway at 7 o'clock with you, also do some Q&A. And boy, I tell you, we really timed this out greatly because I think we'll be in a really interesting time as we have this forum again on January 29th in terms of where this Senate trial could be. Right. We're going to have not just the Senate trial, but we're also going to be, what, within a matter of a few days of the, of the Iowa caucuses. And so we're going to have an incredible amount to talk about. So I really do want to encourage people um, to show up, um, come to Hamlin, get a chance to meet me, get a chance to talk, questions and answers. I think it'll be informative and it'll be a lot of fun. Yeah, absolutely. Again, Wednesday, January 29th, Hamlin University, Anderson, room 305. Also have some information about that posted over at am950radio.com, so definitely looking forward to that. Hey, Professor Schultz, thanks so much for joining us on the program today. do appreciate it. No problem. Talk to you soon. Bye. And you can follow along with what David Schultz writes over at schultzestake.blogspot.com. Coming up in our final segment of the show, we're going to be speaking with Tabitha Montgomery of the Powderhorn Park Neighborhood Association about a great event they have planned for Martin Luther King Day on Monday. But first, let's get to Artbeat for the Week. AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota, Brett Johnson, on the final segment of the 4 o'clock show here on your Friday afternoon. So with Martin Luther King Jr. Day coming up on Monday, we have a guest on the program now to talk about that and an event that is taking place on MLK Day on Monday, and that is Tabitha Montgomery. She is the executive director of the Powderhorn Park Neighborhood Association, and she joins us now. Hi there, Tabitha. How are you doing today? I'm great, Brett. How are you? Doing good. So before we dive into Martin Luther King Jr. Day and some of the events you guys have planned, uh, first can you explain what exactly is the Powderhorn Park Neighborhood Association and what do you guys do? Well, it's a small community building organization right in the heart of South Minneapolis. It's one of like 70 neighborhood organizations in the, across, the city of, across the city itself. Um, and we really focus on trying to do two things, advocate for additional resources in the community that are needed, that contributes to improving community health, and then we like to bring people together in any number of ways that that's possible, and oftentimes that's through events like our MLK, MLK celebration that will take place on Monday. Yeah, so tell us about this event that is taking place on Monday. Again, it'll be at the Powderhorn Recreation Center starting at 11 o'clock, so uh, tell us what exactly is happening with the event and uh, who's going to be speaking and what people can expect. Awesome. So it's our 22nd annual. It's free and open to the public. It's really family-friendly. It happens right in the middle of the day. We provide and kick off the event with a free uh, lunch, if you will, for everyone that's in attendance. Um, And then we go into our programming probably around 1215. Um, We're going to have this year um, representatives from the Twin Cities Gay Men Chorus join us, um, the Native Pride Dancers, um, an amazing community partner, Fartoon Welly, who is the founder and executive director of Isaroon, which is a nonprofit organization that really serves um, Somali women. And she's going to be helping us out by reading one of uh, Dr. King's renowned sermons entitled Remaining Awake Through a Great Revolution. Um, we will have Nikosha and the Relentless Worship uh, Gospel Ensemble that's joining us. So it's going to be an amazing event. 
And while you mentioned the event is free, you still would like people to register if they are going to come to it, correct? Absolutely. They can register on our website. They can check us out at ppna.org backslash MLK celebration. Um, and that's really helping us to keep track of how many people plan to attend. A lot of times people uh, attend this event as a family or perhaps a group. Um, and so that just makes helps us to make sure that we don't exceed capacity. And also some of the proceeds that are going to be raised from the MLK event are going to be going to a number of organizations. Can you tell us about that? Well, so we this year launched what we called our 91 Strong campaign, and this is basically an opportunity for us to highlight that Dr. King's uh, memory and legacy not only continues to allow us a day of observance, but we definitely see it in the work of numbers of institutions across the Twin Cities. The proceeds won't go to those particular organizations. They will continue to help fuel our advocacy work as a, as a small nonprofit, but it gives us an opportunity to encourage attendees out of the different um, organizations who have signed on to the campaign to potentially support those groups, whether it be as a volunteer or through a donation or just even learning more about their work and their service in the community. So what do you hope people take away if they plan on attending your event coming up on Monday again, 11 o'clock at the Powderhorn Recreation Center? What would you like them to take away from it? Well, you know, we are humbled by just the reality that any time that we or any group attempts to celebrate Dr. King's legacy, that it's not our event, it's a community event. And so first and foremost, we want to make sure that people leave inspired and feeling connected to what his life work was really all about. Secondarily, we hope that people understand that observance is not just reflection, that it's not just about coming together and reflecting on all the great things and all the things that uh, Dr. King shared with us. Um, but it's about how do we take steps forward to continue to further the communities that we want to see and that each of us can be a part of that in a meaningful way. And I think it's important to also point this out, is that your event coming up on Monday has not just been for people of color, it's really for anyone who is invited to attend, correct? That is correct. So, Tabitha, tell us what Martin Luther King Day means to you. Well, I think that if we could get to a point as a country where we weren't afraid of the fact that race is something that is often, for each of us, poorly understood because we think that perhaps only people of color, if you will, um, have a racial identity. But race is a function of biology, and we need to embrace the fact that we all have race, regardless of our ancestry, and that culture and race matter, but we can collectively be the bridges across those differences and similarities that we all display. And it's something that ultimately when we get to a point of welcoming the variations of race, welcoming variations in culture and history and community, that we become a stronger, more united community because we see each other for what we bring to the table. And over at PPNA, you guys have some other great events taking place besides the MLK Day Rally coming up on Monday again, 11 o'clock at the Powderhorn Recreation Center. It looks like you guys have the Powderhorn Art Sled Rally, and then, of course, you have the Art Fair, although that's still several months away. So tell us about some of the other events you guys have coming up over at the Powderhorn Park Neighborhood Association. Yeah, we're fortunate. We're fortunate to be an organization that has a very rich history and is rooted in community with very rich soil and being able to establish uh events that are well attended and extremely popular so like like much of what you just described we are a fiscal agent for a community group that hosts the art sled rally and they've been doing that work for now several years and it's an amazing event 
Um, it's outdoors. It's, again, family-friendly. Of course, our 29th annual Powderhorn Art Fair, which is coming up this summer, is an event that we care deeply about. We're also the fiscal agent for Powderhorn Porch Fest for a group of community members, and that's a music festival that takes over several blocks along 17th Avenue South in Minneapolis. We launched our first-ever food festival this past fall, and we will be doing it again for the second year um, in this year that's coming up in um, October. So there's a lot of different things that we do from in terms of, like I had mentioned before, creating space to build connection across all the facets of life, whether it be in this particular case on Monday, reflecting on a, an amazing um, activist and uh, uh, just a person, a human being who's dedicated their lives to making a difference, to the arts, to music, and anything in between. So from that perspective, we generally have found that not only people in Powderhorn Park or Greater Powderhorn, but people from across the Twin Cities metro um, find value and are inspired and connected to many of the events that we have the privilege of hosting. That's Tabitha Montgomery. She is the executive director for the Powderhorn Park Neighborhood Association. And again, encourage you to check out their Martin Luther King Day event coming up on Monday at the Powderhorn Recreation Center. You can find more information at ppna.org. Hey, Tabitha, thanks so much for joining us on the program today. It's been a pleasure, Brett. You have a great one. And that's all the time we have on the program today. Again, I pre-recorded this show during the noon hour, so not sure if that snow that they forecasted actually materialized, but if it did, make sure you stay safe tonight and this weekend. I'll talk to you on Monday when I'm back with a live show.